When my kids were little, we used to read a lot of bedtime stories that would end with the words, and they lived happily ever after. If we had ended our study in the book of Nehemiah last week with what we saw in chapter 12, where you'll recall there had been a time of worship and praise and parading around the walls as they dedicated them to God, we would think that this book could have the words, and they lived happily ever after following God written in it. But there's a chapter 13. And as we turn to Nehemiah chapter 13 today, what we're going to find is that people fell into some of the same sins and compromises that they had earlier turned from in this book. You know, when it comes to our walk with God, it's like a fire. You have to constantly tend to fire. You have to remove the ashes. You have to put more fuel on the fire to keep it burning brightly. So as we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 13 today, I want you to look at your own lives. And I want you to ask yourselves, what are you doing personally to keep your fire with God, your walk with God burning brightly? I invite you to turn with me now in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 13 as we see what was done by Nehemiah to bring the people back to God. In verses 1 through 3, it says, Now on that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found in it no, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it came about that when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now, as this chapter is beginning, we see the words there on that day. And what we're really looking at are the closing words of the book. Because what we're going to find is in verses 1 through 3, this is the result of the reforms that are about to be covered in the rest of the book. As you look at Nehemiah verse 4, it says, now prior to this, and then you find a description of the sins of the people that they fell back into. And this falling away happened while Nehemiah was away. Because if you look at verse 6, it tells us there, but during all this time, I, that is Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. Now, I want you to remember all the way back in chapter 1, we saw that Artaxerxes was called the king of Persia. And now here he's called the king of Babylon. Is this a mistake or what's happening? Well, you'll, you'll notice that Nehemiah tells us this is in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, which would be 431 B.C. And as you look at history, what you find is Persia was ruling over the empire of Babylon. They had been conquering territory. They were taking over. And so he's also the king over this Babylonian area. It could be that Artaxerxes is even living, residing in this former territory of Babylon. But what's happening is uh, Nehemiah has been recalled to go and see the king. Nehemiah, when he went to Jerusalem, uh, he, he said in the early part of the book, I gave the king an exact time, a specific time he would be there. Now, what we've uh, talked about as we've gone through Nehemiah is he's been there 12 years. As we've covered the book of Nehemiah, it's covered a period of 12 years where he's been the, the governor over uh, Jerusalem. And at this point, the king has said, Nehemiah, I need you to come back. I want to hear a report. I mean, he's been getting updates about the province. He's been hearing the things that are happening. But in that day, kings wanted to make sure that the servants were still loyal to them. So he recalls Nehemiah. He says, we need to renew our relationship. I not only want to hear firsthand uh, and see you, but I want to make sure that you're, you're still loyal to me. And so while he's there with the king, verse 6 tells us, after some time, however, 
I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem, and I learned about the evil. Now, you'll notice there's not a specific time mentioned as to how long he was there. It says, after some time. And if you look at verse 23, you see that it was years. Because in verse 23, what we find is there were these mixed marriages where children had been born. So at a minimum, there's a year. But then these kids have grown to an age where they should be able to speak. So you've got to add a little bit more time in that. And this is part of the evil that's mentioned in verse 6, where it says there's these mixed marriages that are taking place. Now, the problem with these mixed marriages is that we're not talking about uh, what you may think of in our day. We're, we're dealing with people who worshipped other gods. These are the pagans, the Ammonites, the Moabites. These are individuals who uh, said Jehovah is not the one true God. These, these are people who were drawing the Jews away from worshipping the one true God. And you'll recall that earlier in this book, we saw the people made a covenant with God. They said, we will be a separate, we will be a holy people. And what happened is these pagan spouses were causing uh, followers of, of Yahweh, the Jews, to move away from following him to worship these false gods. And the, and the people that are specifically mentioned in verses 2 and 3 are the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now, you see this mention of a guy by the name of Balaam. And Balaam was actually a Jewish prophet. If you read Numbers chapters 22 through 25, you read about Balaam. And there was a point where the Moabites were trying to defeat the Jews. And as they were going against Israel, they were losing in battle. And so they call this, this prophet and they say, hey, we want you to curse the people of Israel. Uh, you've got a direct line to God, so we want you to remove God's blessing and put a curse on them uh, so that we'll be able to defeat them. And this guy Balaam decides, hey, you know, cash is king. I'm going to turn my back on Jehovah. I'm going to turn my back on my own people, and I'm going to curse them. Well, he forgot who he worked for because as he goes to curse the Jews, the words that come out of his mouth are not a curse but a blessing. And the Moabites go, what are you doing? We're, we're paying you to curse these people, not bless them. And they try all this stuff. Well, maybe if we come over here and look at them and we do this. And every time Balaam tries to curse, it's a blessing. And the Moabites say, we're not paying you for blessings. We're paying you for curses. And Balaam wants the cash. So he says, okay, God's not going to let me curse them, but here's a way that we can get God to remove his blessing. And he says, the way you do that is you give your sons and your daughters uh, to the Jews. And as they marry your pagan children, their hearts will be turned away from following the true God, and God will withdraw his hand of blessing. And so as this is taking place, uh, it's the same thing that we see happening here. Now, to reaffirm just how uh, this happens, if you look at Nehemiah 13.26, there you see that it also happened with King Solomon. And you remember Solomon married foreign women. And as he did so, his heart was drawn away from following God. And this is why this issue of mixed marriages is so critical here. Not only for the people we're reading about in Nehemiah's day, but it applies to us in our day. If you read the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 6.14, it tells us a Christian is not to be married to a non-believer. The word that is used is we're not to be unequally yoked. And the reason that we're not to be unequally yoked is best illustrated by looking at a yoke. And so what I have here is an actual yoke. This belonged to my wife's uh, great-great-great-grandfather back in the 1800s. And this was a, a training yoke that they used for small animals to begin to train them on how to use a yoke. 
And this is the way the yoke should be, but for the sake of illustration, I'm going to turn it upside down. And so what you would do is you would put one animal on this side, and then you would put the other one on this side. And here is this ring where they would attach either a plow or a cart or something in order to uh, you know, have them pull this uh, apparatus behind. And as you did this, if you had a, a larger, stronger animal on one side and you had a weaker one on the other, what do you think would happen as you were trying to plow a straight furrow? Well, this would happen. If you had a stronger animal on one side, it's going to pull and your furrow is not going to go the direction you wanted. Now, what may also happen if these things were trying to pull in opposite directions is it would look like, you know, some of us do when we're driving down the road, right? Uh, they'd be weaving all over, and it wasn't because they were texting. It was because these individuals uh, were stronger and unequally yoked. And so this is the picture that God gives to us. He says that if you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are on one side, and you have a non-believer on the other side, he says, think about what life is going to look like in your home. As you're going along together, you're going to say our standard, our guide is God's word. And this person on this side says, no, the world's way is better, or what society says. And you're going to be doing this. You're going to be drawn all over the place. And I see this all the time. I can't tell you how many individuals and couples and families that I've counseled with over the years who come in and they talk about the pain in their marriage because they're unequally yoked. They say, well, I have a, a spouse who doesn't believe in God. Or I thought my husband or my wife was a stronger believer than they were, and, and I'm the one who's having to be the, the spiritual leader in the home if it's the woman in some cases, or if it's a man saying it's just not worth the fights with my wife. And what happens is uh, the way you raise your children you're, you're, you're like this. You're all over the road because one of you is saying this is the standard and others saying we should do this. Some of you are saying we should come to church and we should worship as a family. And you, you look like this as you're dragging your, your spouse to church. And after a while, you just say it's just not worth it. I'm not going to continue fighting. And sometimes what we say is, well, how unfair of God because this guy or this girl is, is this really neat person and has all these qualities I'm looking for, and God says I shouldn't marry this person. And it's because God says I know the pain that is coming. I've given you my word, which is the owner's manual. I've created you. I know what will happen in your home if you guys are unequally yoked. And so this was the problem that we're reading about in Nehemiah's day. You had the Jews who were following the one true God, and then these pagans were coming in and they were drawing them off course. And there was this constant battle that was taking place. And as we've gone through this series in the book of Nehemiah, we've seen what the enemies of the Jews were trying to do is block the work of God. They failed in keeping the walls from being rebuilt at this point. And now as the people are following God and they're walking with him and the blessings of God are on, on the nation because of their, their obedience to him, the enemies say, how can we get them off track? How can we draw them away? And this is what's happening uh, where these intermarriages are taking place, this old strategy that Balaam talked about from the past. And in verses 4 through 5, we see just how successful he's been in getting inside the walls of the city to derail the work. Because it says now prior to this, Eliashabib, the high priest, well, he's the priest here. We'll see in verse 28, he's the high priest. Eliashib, the priest 
who was appointed over the chambers in the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him. When formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. And so what we see in verse 28 is not only is he the high priest, but he has a grandson. Elishabib's son had a son, and this guy intermarries with a, an Ammonite. And the person that he marries into, the family... Uh, that he marries is the daughter of Sambalite, the Horonite. And so as we've gone from the, uh, through this book of Nehemiah, you'll remember there were two chief enemies, Tobiah and Sambalat. And they've come up numerous times as these people in opposition to Nehemiah. And all the way back in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20, you'll remember they came in at the beginning before the walls were rebuilt. And Nehemiah excluded them. He said, you are, to, you are not a people in the nation of Israel. You have no part in the work of God. You do not worship the true God. And so he drove them away. And for all these chapters, he's been battling them, pushing them out, keeping these enemies at bay. And now when Nehemiah leaves and he's gone for this period of years, uh, they've come back. They're not only back among the people. Uh, one of them, Tobiah, is actually living in the very temple itself. Remember, the temple had these outer courts called the Court of the Gentiles. And as a non-Jew, that was as far as he should have been able to come up to that balustrade, that dividing wall. And then you had the inner courts, the Court of the Women and the Court of the Men and the the priest. And then there was the innermost, the Holy Holy area where the, the Ark of the Covenant was. Not all the way behind the veil, but outside of that were these storerooms where priests would reside when they were on duty, where the supplies were kept, where the the tithes and offerings were kept. And this is where Tobiah is. He should have at best been out in the farthest court, but instead he's actually living in the warehouse inside the temple. And what happened is, Elishabib, the high priest, is the one who would have given him this room. And the reason is that he turns his back on God and his laws because he wanted his grandson to be happy. He wanted his grandson to be happy. I want you to stop for a moment and ask yourself if it's more important for you to be happy or holy. Is it more important to be happy or holy? I talk to people all the time who say, well, God wants me to be happy. And God wants to bless us. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. But abundant life comes through walking with God and obedience to him. And when we turn our back on God and we say the things that make me happy are more important than the things that God calls me to where I'm to be holy and to walk with him. The New Testament tells us be holy for I'm holy. So ask yourself, is it more important to you to be happy or holy? Parents, ask yourself, is it more important for you to have kids who are happy or holy, who are walking with God? Here was the the high priest willing to set all that God said aside. He broke God's law by allowing his grandson to be involved in a mixed marriage. He broke God's law by allowing this foreigner to come into the very inner area of the temple. And when Nehemiah returns and he finds this has happened, look at verses 7 through 9. He says, And I came to Jerusalem and I learned about this evil that Elishabeb had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me. 
So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. And then I gave an order that they cleanse the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Now, as you look at Nehemiah's reaction here, you may think, well, gosh, you know, these guys didn't like each other. This kind of personal, he shows up and he just pitches a fit as he pitches Tobiah out. But I want you to remember what we've seen about Nehemiah. Go all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 5. And as Nehemiah is confronting sin, as he's dealing with wrong, we saw and we talked about there that there's a right and a wrong way to deal with stuff. And we saw that Nehemiah was a guy who first prayed. He talked to God. He got control of himself. As he said there in chapter 5, I consulted with myself. And we talked about how we're to do this, that we're to be under control when we deal with stuff. We're to go to God. We're to have him guide us. And this is what Nehemiah is doing. It's not wrong that he's mad. In fact, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and yet do not sin. There are times as Christians we are called to have a righteous indignation, a holy anger. And this is Nehemiah. He's angry that God's house has been defiled. He's angry that the people have gone back on their covenant to be a separate and a holy people. He's angry that they've been neglecting the work of God. And so as he deals with this, it's a righteous anger. He sees sin. He deals with it directly and decisively. It's like what a doctor does. When a person comes in and says, uh, I have cancer. And in fact, when the person returns maybe and says, my cancer has returned, the doctor who prescribed chemotherapy or radiation or things that are difficult and hard on the body says, we're going to come and we're going to hit this with a higher dose. We're going to hit this with a, a more extreme regimen in order to kill this cancer. And so this is Nehemiah. He's dealt with this sin. And now he's coming back and he's hitting it at a higher dose. Jesus did the same thing a few hundred years later. Remember, he came into the temple at one point. He saw this outer court of the Gentiles that should have been a house of prayer for the foreign nations being turned into a thieves' bazaar. There was merchandising. The merchants were selling there. And it says Jesus turns over the tables. He made a cord of whips and he drove them out of the temple. And so as we're reading about Nehemiah here, and we're, we're talking about Jesus here, what's the application for us? Next time you're mad, you should trash the place? Start turning over tables, driving people out? Is that what we're to do? That's very rarely the level that we have to get to. But when we see sin, when we are, are confronted with wrong, what is required in every situation is for us to have the courage and the conviction to do something about it. When we see sin, how many times have you been like Nehemiah where, where you heard of a wrong and it says here he was very displeased about it? What happened next? You saw sin, you got mad, you said this is wrong. Did it stop there? Or did you take the next step and pray and say, God, what can I do about this? What would you like me to do? God, would you give me the courage to be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who's going to confront this wrong? Would you help me to step into the gap? Would you help me to deal with it? You know, sometimes the things we need to deal with are not sin that is out in the world, but in our own lives. Sometimes the Tobiah in our temple is literally in our temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? As you think of your own life this morning, is there a Tobiah in your temple? 
You know, as Christians, we talk about when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we invite him to come and live in our heart. And so as you picture your heart as, as Christ's home, ask yourself if you have a room reserved in your home for your little secret sin. Is there some place you've kind of set aside and said, Jesus, you can be Lord of my life in everything but this one area? You have a little area that you've set aside, uh, maybe a relationship that is not honoring to God, an inappropriate relationship physically or emotionally. Maybe a man or a woman in your world that you're saying, they're, they're such a fine person and I, and I think I want to marry them, but they're, they're, they're not a believer in Jesus. Are you willing to set aside that, that one particular requirement that God says, are they a believer? Ask yourself if there is, is some addiction in your life, drinking, drugs, pornography. Is there a little secret area in your life that you're saying, I've, I'm following God except for this one little thing. You know, I have that little weekend binge where I'll do this, or I, I have that time where I set aside and I, I, I go and I surf the Internet and I look at things I shouldn't be looking at. It could be you're a man or a woman of principle except when it comes to an area of compromise, maybe when taxes are due and you say, well, the government doesn't deserve my money or, you know, this, this account can be kind of, you know, massaged a little for a higher profit or I'm going to cut a corner in the way I do business. You know, if you have a Tobiah in your temple, remove it. We need to do as Nehemiah did. We need to do as Jesus said in Matthew five twenty nine through 30. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, pluck it out. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. Now, is this saying we're to physically mutilate our bodies? Are we to go and rip our eyes out so that we don't see things we shouldn't? If we've stolen something, are we to cut off the appendage so we'll never do that again? That's not what it's calling you to do. What it's pointing to is a radical dealing of your sin. Where you're saying that it is so severe, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to separate myself from that sin. If there's a Tobiah in your temple, do as Nehemiah did here, clean house. And as Nehemiah did this, notice what else he did. He doesn't leave the room empty. It says in verse 9, after he removed the sin, after he got Tobiah out, after he tossed all his stuff, he replaced it with the right things. It says he cleansed the room, and then he brought in the utensils of God. He brought in this, the things that should have been stored there in the first place. If you have some sin in your life, if there's a relationship where you're falling into sin because of somebody, then separate from them. Get that person out of your life, and then replace that person with somebody who is godly, who will encourage you, who will walk with you. If you have a non-believing boyfriend or girlfriend, as great as that person may be, they are not the person God has chosen for you. And so first remove that individual and then ask that God would bring in a godly guy or a girl into your life. If you're somebody who, who runs with a group that gossips, remove those people from your world and find those who will, who will be men and women of integrity, who will talk about the things that are encouraging rather than talking about other people. If you're peeking at pornography, we'll remove that from your life and then fill your mind with, with God's word. Remove the things that don't belong and replace it with the right things. Memorize a, a passage of scripture 
that says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to gaze lustfully at a young woman. So in those moments where that temptation comes, you repeat God's word back and you say, I'm going to superimpose the cross of Christ over this. I'm not going to do those things. If we will work at replacing the wrong things with the right ones, it will be harder for the wrong things to come back in. There's an African proverb that says, if two dogs get in a fight, the one that's been eating well wins. As you think about your life, you have a spiritual dog and a carnal dog. Which one's eating better? You know, the world feeds our carnal dog every day. The stuff we hear on the radio, see on the, the you know, screens in front of our face from our phones to the TV to cable. Uh, the, the people you're around, the stuff in the world, it's feeding our, our carnal dog. And how often does your spiritual dog eat? On a Sunday when you come to a sermon? Maybe a midweek Bible study? Which one is eating well? So when a fight happens, we wonder, why does one dog over the other win? In verses 10 through 11, Nehemiah takes some additional steps to make sure the right things are in place. It says there, I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. So the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And then I gathered them together and I restored them to their post. You'll remember in chapter 10, we saw that part of the covenant that people made is they said, we will not neglect the house of our God. And they said, we will provide the tithes and the offerings, which were the paychecks for the priests and the Levites. And what's happening is these storehouses are going empty because people are not bringing in their gifts and offerings. The Levites and the priests couldn't feed their families. And so they left their posts in the temple. They went out, they started working the fields, they started cultivating the land themselves so they could feed their families. And the house of God was being neglected because the, the, the work was going undone. And then without the offerings and support of the people, this is happening. And also the room becomes empty, which leaves room for Tobiah to come in. And seeing yet another problem that had been previously fixed, think about how easy it would have been for Nehemiah to go, you know what, forget it. It's just not worth it. I mean, remember, this is a guy who is living in luxury in the Persian palace in chapter 1. This is a guy who heard about the, the you know, condition of the house of God and how things were as they were. And it says he, he left his position. He left his luxury. He came. He's been making all these sacrifices. He got the people back. The work was done. Things were going great. And then the king says, I need you to come home for a while. He's back in the palace. He's back in the luxury. He's, he's the right-hand man to the king. I'm sure the king said, Nehemiah, we've missed you. you know, we want you to stay. He said, I asked to leave from the king. And he goes back and he sees the mess. He could have just said, it's not worth it. I'm going back. I'm going to go back and serve the king. But instead, he dives right in. He courageously confronts the leaders in verse 11. When it says he reprimanded the officials, the Hebrew word that is used here is a very strong word. It describes arguing with somebody. But it goes beyond just an argument. It actually describes a physical confrontation. Nehemiah is willing to have physical combat. It's a legal term that means bringing a court case against somebody. And what Nehemiah presents to God is this case. 
And he then goes to the people and he presents God's case to them. And he says, look, you violated the law. The law says in Deuteronomy 12, 19, be careful that you do not forsake the Levite as long as they live in your land. Well, the Levites had left the temple. They were working the land to feed themselves. As these leaders and the people are confronted with their neglect of God's work, verses 12 through 13 tell us that they respond positively. Because it says, And all Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and the oil from the storehouses. And in charge of the the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the the priest, and Padiah of the Levites. And in addition to them was Hanan and the son of Zakur, the son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable. And it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. I want you to notice something here. It says as the people bring their offerings to the storehouses. They didn't have to go out, cultivate the fields, wait for the harvest, do all this. It's not that the land had been desolate. They were struggling to feed themselves. It says when Nehemiah says, what are you guys doing? And he points out the wrong and he reminds them of their covenant. They all go to their homes, to their barns, and they bring the stuff immediately. They've been storing it up in their own homes instead of bringing it to God in his work. And then as, as this is happening, as the storehouses suddenly are full again to oversee what was to be distributed, Nehemiah chooses men who are called reliable or trustworthy. I want you to think about those words for a minute. Reliable, trustworthy. Would people who know you those who live with you, those who work with you, those who see you at school, would they say that those are characteristics or traits that describe you personally? Are you a man, a woman who is reliable, who's trustworthy? Is your word as good as gold? Or when a better opportunity comes along, do you forget what you committed to and and, and chase after the new opportunity? As you think in terms of, of, of what we're looking at here, are you a person who faithfully follows through on the commitments that you've made? Nehemiah was one of these type of people. He stayed faithful to God even when it's costly to him. Think of how costly things have been for Nehemiah. We talked about chapter 1 where he had to leave his position of power. We had to, he had to leave the luxury in the palace, not just once, but now a second time as the king had him home again, and, and Nehemiah says, I, I, I want to go back. I want to serve God. I want to serve the people. Remember the sacrifices we've seen all throughout this book. He's, he's given up financial sacrifices as he funded the work of God himself, as he, for, as he didn't take the, the, the salary and, and the benefits that were due him as governor. He funded all of this out of his own pocket. There's been a personal cost to Nehemiah as he continually confronts sin, which, which has, has detrimental effects on relationships. We're talking about this guy, Eliashib, the high priest. Do you remember where we saw him first early in the book? He was one of the first workers on the wall with Nehemiah. These guys had been tight. They, they were friends. They were allies. They were in it together to serve God. And now Nehemiah has to come back, and he has to confront his friend face to face and say, you're wrong. And things need to be made right. Think of all the other people he made mad as he came back and he said, why, why are the storehouses empty and your houses are full of the offerings of God? Bring those in. And people brought the things and some of them were mad. 
You know, when you're faithful to follow God and you do some of the things we're talking about here, it can be costly, can it? Some of you know personally the things you've faced as you've stood for God in your school or where you work, places on a, a team or something that were, you were passed over for, a promotion you didn't get at work, an account that would have been very lucrative to you, but because you were unwilling to compromise and a coworker was willing to do whatever it took to get it, they got, they got the benefit of the financial you know, things that came with that account. Think of the relationships maybe you've lost where people have said to you, oh, you're a holy roller or you think you're better than us because you're trying to stand for God in the midst of the darkness all around us. You know, in those times where you're facing those things, I want you to remember that what is right is not always popular and what is popular is not always right. And there are going to be times you are going to face individuals who are not going to like you or want to be around you, or continue a relationship. And in those times, I know it's hard. You can struggle with it, and you can lose friendships, jobs, opportunities. But in those moments, I want you to remember this man, Nehemiah, because Nehemiah was a person who cared more about the approval of God over the people. He didn't care about being popular with the people. He didn't care about the positions and perks of the world. He said what is most important is the approval of God. You know, last week we talked about how we in our worship serve an audience of one, God in heaven. And all throughout this book, Nehemiah has been a man who has said, I serve an audience of one, the Lord God who is in heaven. He is the one that I need to have approval from, not other people. And we see that again in verse 14 because he says, Remember me for this, O my God. And do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. All throughout the book of Nehemiah, this has been his constant prayer. He's gone to God. He said, remember me. In Nehemiah 5.19, he said, remember me for what I've done. He was always seeking the approval of God, not of man, which is what helped him to be courageous as he confronts wrong rather than worrying about how popular he is with people. And this is a good thing because in verses 15 through 18, we see Nehemiah makes a whole other group mad. (laughs) It says he confronts those who were working and selling on the Sabbath, breaking the covenant they had made. Remember in chapter 10, they said, we are going to set apart the Sabbath. We are going to honor God. We're going to worship him. And now Nehemiah comes in. He says, you guys are merchandising. You got people lined up outside the walls of the city. And what he does is he again comes in and he takes steps that are necessary to put the priorities of putting God first back. It says that the first thing he does in verses 15 through 22 is he rebukes the leaders. And then he reminds the people of their past captivity. He says, do you remember why we were in captivity to begin with? How we didn't follow God and his law, how we didn't give the land its Sabbath, how we didn't do the things we were supposed to. And and then just as he did when he appointed overseers over the offerings in the temple, he again sets up new trustworthy guards over the city gates so that he can help the people to keep from breaking the Sabbath by removing the temptation. And then he replaces the wrong things with the right things. And as this section comes to a close, he prays in verse 22, For this also remember me, O my God. And have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. 
Once again, it's the pleasure of God and not the praises of people that Nehemiah seeks. And as he prays this prayer, he says, God, remember my faithfulness. He uses the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is this word that means God's loyal love. It points to God being faithful to us even when we're faithless. It points to what God did for us as he gave his son ultimately to die for us. It speaks of how God is a God who will, with, who will uphold the covenant even when we fall short of our side. And it's, it's timely to use this word because, again, we see how unfaithful the people have been in verses 23 through 24. It says, in those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. As for their children, half spoke the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. One of the reasons these pagan marriages led to a falling away from God is because they they were not speaking the Hebrew language at home. They were unable to read it, which meant they were unable to read the law of God. You remember earlier, the priests had to stand and they read the law. Ezra read the law to the people and then they had to translate it because nobody understood the word. And before we look more at what Nehemiah does about this, I want to ask you a question. What is the language that your kids are learning to speak at home? I'm not asking you, do they speak Spanish or English or French or German? What are your kids learning to speak at home? What language? And by that, I mean this. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, it says, They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is from God does not listen. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You know, when your children or those who come in contact with you hear you, what are they learning? What language? Are they learning the word of God? Or are they learning what the world says? Think about what the world tells us. The world tells us, well, you know, all roads lead to heaven. All the, all the gods of the world today, well, they're all the same, just different names. Allah and Jesus, what's the different? difference? They're the same God. Has anybody here heard that? Is that what the Bible says? Is that what the word of God says? Jesus, who is called the word in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God goes on to tell us in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The world says all roads will lead to heaven. Everybody will ultimately get there. Love wins in the end. And what God says is, I love the world so much I gave my only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have the gift of eternal life. He gave his very life to pay the penalty of death that we owed for our sins. That is what true love is. The world says, no God who is love will send anybody to hell. And God says, I paid the penalty of death so that nobody has to go to hell. But you have to come to faith in me, whether Jew or Gentile, whether Arab or Muslim, whatever your background, God says there is a way home to heaven and I have paid the penalty of death for you. And I invite you to come to me. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
So as you think of what people are hearing from you, do they hear the language of the world or the word of God? These kids in this compromised setting were growing up without a clear understanding in their home of what it meant to follow the one true God. And so as Nehemiah sees this, verse 25 says, So I contended with them, and I cursed them, and I struck them. I struck some of them, and I pulled out their hair, and I made them swear by God, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now, once again, we see where Nehemiah takes steps to confront the wrong. And you may be saying, whoa, whoa, Roger, you're always talking about how we're to speak the truth, but in love. And we are. Doesn't sound like Nehemiah was very loving here, right? I mean, if you're looking for a turn or burn, shake or bake, fly or fry message, this was it. (laughs) Right? Nehemiah is confronting people. He's cursing them. He's hitting them. He's ripping hair out. And we're going, what in the world is going on? Well, this is what's going on. When it says he cursed them, it doesn't mean he's using profanity. The word used here means to be disrespectful or to dishonor. It's a very severe term. It means literally to treat somebody with contempt or to revile. And you're saying, you're not helping yourself, Roger. Well, stay stay with me. When it says he pulled her hair out, it's not talking about ripping the hair out of the top of your head. It's talking about the beards that men had. Who were the guys who had beards in that day? They were the older men. They were the leaders. They were the fathers of clans. Specifically, the priest is who he's focusing on here. And when it says that he rips the hair out of their, their, their beards is what it means. The Hebrew word means to make slick or bald. And it's referred to plucking the beard out. It's found in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6. There it talks about Jesus Christ. There it talks about as the Messiah was being reviled as they were preparing to crucify him in Isaiah 53 and all the, the suffering that he went through. One of the things they did to humiliate Jesus is they, they plucked his beard out. It was a sign of contempt, of reproach. We find this in 2 Samuel chapter 10 where we're told about the Ammonites wanting to, to dishonor the ambassadors that David sent. And in 2 Samuel 10.5, it says, The men were greatly humiliated, and the king said, uh, Stay at Jericho until your beard grows and then return. They went and they shaved off half their beard. And David said, This is such a sign of dishonor. Stay where you are in private until your beard starts to grow back. And so as Nehemiah comes and as he rips the hair out of the beards of these older men, these fathers of clans, these priests who were over it, why does Nehemiah go after those guys? Because the fathers were the ones who arranged the marriage of their kids. I asked you earlier, parents, do you want your kids to be happy or holy? And these guys were saying it's more important to us that our kids have who they want. You remember when Samson wanted to marry the Philistine woman and he says to his parents, get this girl, she looks good to me. And so what he does is he goes to the guys who are responsible and he holds them accountable. He goes to the priest and he says to Ilshabib, you are of the Aaronic line and there has to be purity in the line and you are allowing your grandson to marry a foreign woman and you are polluting the line and the priesthood itself is at stake. This is why it's so drastic. This is why it's so severe. And this is why Nehemiah comes with both barrels blazing. 
And as Nehemiah confronts this, as he deals with their sins, he again goes to his knees and he prays in verse 29, Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. He says these priests are threatening the very future of the nation. And then he, he, he comes in and he comes to a close. The, this book ends with the words in verses 30 through 31. Thus I purified them from everything foreign. And I appointed, uh, it says, I appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood and I appointed times and for the first fruits. And he says, remember me, oh my God, for good. You know, if you were Nehemiah, Writing this book, is that how you would have ended it? <laughs> you've, you, you've got all this stuff you've done, and, and is this how you would have ended the book? Or would you have been tempted to make some mention of the great project you led? Hey, the walls were knocked down for 142 years, and 52 days, not, not bragging, but you know. There's a nice plaque on the wall that says, Project Led by Nehemiah, you know. If, if you were Nehemiah, would you have, have said something in here about, well, you know, there's, there's been not only the rebuilding of the wall, but the city's been repopulated. There's been a growth uh, in, in not only the, the population of the city, but the economic prosperity of the city. You know, as this book comes to a close, we don't hear anything about a bronze memorial or a statue being placed in the, the town square. Instead, there's just this modest mention. I purified the priesthood. I purged the land of the pagan influences, and I provided for the temple. God, would you remember me for this? Would, would you, God, uh, on that day where I stand before you, say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? That's what Nehemiah is looking for. He lived his life for the Lord, and as such, he was only looking for God's approval. Does that describe you when your life is over on this world? When you leave this earth, your position, your titles, your portfolio, all the things you've, you've left behind, they're going to burn up one day. And we are going to stand before God. Those who know his son, Jesus Christ, will come before God in heaven and will stand before what's called the Bema Seat a place of judgment for rewards. And God, Jesus said in, in a parable of the talents, for those who have lived their lives faithfully, he said, on that day, those who have lived for me will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Is that what you're living your life for? Are you a man, a woman, a boy or a girl who says, I live my life for the approval of an audience of one? I don't have to be popular with people. I don't have to have all the stuff the world offers. I mean, remember Nehemiah. He had power, position. This was a guy who had everything the world offered, and he set it all aside to say, I'm living my life for an audience of one. And it's why he says, God, would you remember me for what I've done? As we end the book of Nehemiah, may we make that our goal. May we be those who live our lives for an audience of one so that on that day when we die, we will stand before the Lord and we'll hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Will you join me, please, as we pray?
Lord God, we thank you for the book of Nehemiah. We thank you for the lessons that we've learned as we've gone through this. Lessons on servant leadership. Lessons on how to pray, how to live a holy life. All that it's shown us about your love and your faithfulness for us. Lord, may we be those like Nehemiah, living our lives for an audience of one. Living for you so that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when we come home to heaven. We thank you, God, that you've provided the way home to heaven through that of your son. His death in our place, not because of any good work we've done, not because of any way we've earned our way to heaven. It is through grace and grace alone through the death of your son. And so you invite us all, God, to come and be a part of your family through what your son did as he came and died for us. As those who have received that gift of grace, may we live our lives in a way to please our Savior Jesus. We pray this in the name of Christ, whom we love and serve.